This is the Living Prophets Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. In this episode, I'm exploring revolutionary truth and reconciliation. Herein, I'll present several flavors of peacemaking, because around the world and across the generations, there have been many attempts to make peace between divided groups, and not all of these look the same. I'll explain and give examples of what restorative justice means. In our recent history, there have been more than a dozen attempts at something called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Whenever there's a war or a genocide or apartheid or racism that has damaged entire generations of people, there's been a process to make good and make amends for the wrongs and the misdeeds that have happened by people's forefathers. There's a lot to be gleaned from these attempts because not all of them worked. Here are some stories. Children in the Montessori school went through a restorative justice process called a a peace table. When they disagreed with someone or had a fight or They had to go to a table, hold a rose, if you were the one talking, and try to make restitution, try to make yourself understood. And then the harder part, listen to the other person. So these aren't grandiose, pie-in-the-sky ideas. It's something we can teach ourselves and teach our children. The process called truth and reconciliation has played out in many places, but in many different forms. The denazification of post-World War II Germany commenced an ongoing 74-year reckoning of the layers of culpability in German society, but was long marked by shame and retribution. In South Africa, by contrast, through restorative justice. In Serbia, the commission to confront Bosnian genocide was shut down shortly after it was chartered, mired in the very identity politics that triggered the brutal Balkan Wars. And now there is Gambia, the tiny West African nation seeking to document the corruption and atrocities under the 22-year rule of fugitive ex-president Yahya Gemma. What are they seeking to to achieve? This Truth Commission um, was created by the legislature. It's not a trial. The point of it is to investigate what happened over the past couple of years in this country. And during this process, which is expected to take two years, there is a lead questioner. His name is Essa Fall. And he, along with other questioners, will be publicly interviewing perpetrators as well as witnesses, as well as victims. Now, one of the key individuals in this process is the attorney general. Um, His name is Mr. Tembadu, and he will have to decide who is prosecuted and who is going to be held responsible in a country where so many people were involved. Can you hold everybody responsible? And Mr. Tambaru has said, no, you can't hold everybody responsible because they, they need people to testify as to what happened. And in order to get people to testify, they have sort of put out a, a carrot of amnesty. So some of these perpetrators who are coming and saying, I did these terrible things, may be given amnesty at the end. 
because the heart of restorative justice is the basic recognition of the common humanity of all involved parties. So this work is philosophical, religious. It creates methods to dissolve stereotypes and worn systems, ruts that we have in our thinking. And it helps us name fears that might be cutting through our impulses and encouraging us to lean towards punishment and revenge. And sitting in a circle of chairs, we have an opportunity to have a reading and go around the circle introducing ourselves. Then we divide into pairs and get to know each other. And it feels thrilling. Something new is forming here. It feels awkward. Strangers are trying to become less strange to each other. It feels ancient. The markers that divide us, looks, life choices, experiences, histories, are older than we are. And it feels tenuous. This effort could easily fall away as so many other attempts to bridge human gaps do, are, can be. And we're given 30 minutes to get to know our partner. So I'm paired with this very thoughtful, intelligent teacher from Midwest City. We find common ground in our families and our children and our mutual dismay over overcrowded classrooms. We veer off into music and books. We've just begun talking about how we were raised when we're called back into the full circle group. We have trouble breaking off our conversation. Reluctantly, we stop and join everyone else. Now we're asked to talk about our experiences from this brief exercise in starting a new relationship. As we go around, I am caught up short when my partner says, it was okay. We enjoyed talking, but I can't trust Kathy. I'm stunned. Had I said something so offensive she felt threatened? I barely listened to the rest of the circle as I replayed our conversation. Nope, nothing weird. How could she not trust me? I'm, I'm honest. Don't you laugh, Ken Blankard. <laughs> I'm mostly honest. <laughs> I try to be empathetic. I pay my bills. I keep my commitments. I'm a continual learner. I obey the law. It took some time to fully understand why my partner didn't trust Kathy Edwards. It's nothing personal. Who she cannot trust is an unfamiliar, not from around here, white woman. She cannot trust an outsider who's not made a clear commitment to stay in relationship with her and her community. She and her community have been repeatedly harmed, often unintentionally by the powerful. Oh, we have answers. Oh, we know what to do. Let us help you. Her trust has to be earned over time. Her trust has to be earned by showing up over and over again. And my glaring blind spot is inexperience, ignorance, and naivete. And the best antidote for those problems 
is getting back into the game, staying in the game. I have to be willing to make mistakes. I have to manage my own fears of seeming foolish. I am less useful to the world, to Hope Church, to my family, when my worldview is so solidified. It's too solidified to welcome and consider vastly different experiences than my own. So while I haven't been able to show up over the long haul with divine worship, the congregation of First Unitarian did and does. listening to Comedy Central. If there was one aspect of South African culture that I could transplant to America, what would it be? Huh. I think it would be um, maybe our general ease at talking about uh, race and our racial past, you know? Because South African and America have very similar histories, you know, in that there was like, there were many things that were done to people of color that were extremely heinous. But we, we just maybe because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in our country, we were forced to talk about it, and we just talk about it. It's painful, but we laugh about it, and it's out there. Whereas in America, I find there's like a lot of tension in and around that. A lot of people are just like, yeah, well, come on, we don't have Do we have to bring that up? And it's like, dude, I'm not saying you did slavery. Calm down. You know what I mean? Because that's how a lot of people treat it. They're just like, I wasn't there. I didn't say you were there. I'm just like, slavery happened. Yeah, but I, I swear I wasn't there. Dude, you're 37. Calm down. You know what I mean? And I feel like there could be, it, it helps to be able to have conversations about those things because then it helps you understand how you got to where you got to. But if you can't have those conversations, then you just have to operate in a blind space of like, how did this happen? You know, why do so many black people live in this part of Harlem? I don't know, why do you think? I don't know. And it doesn't fix everything, don't get me wrong. But I do think it makes it easier to address issues, to have conversations when you can just be like, yeah, man, this happened. You know what I mean? You can just be like, yeah, that was, that was crazy. That was wild that that happened, that this happened, that you, and, and then, and that's the thing. A lot of the time people think it's about assigning blame, but it's not. It's about addressing what happened so that everyone can move forward and understand why things need to be fixed or how they got there in the first place. Does that make sense? Hello, this is the History Hour podcast from the BBC World Service with me, Max Pearson. We begin this week in South Africa, where the 20th century was marked by the brutality of the apartheid regime and the struggle for legitimate majority rule. To build a new society, the country had to confront some of the darkest moments of its past. The service to mark the start of the Commission's work is in keeping with the spiritual tone set by Archbishop Tutu. We are charged to unearth the truth about our dark past, to lay the ghosts of that past so that they will not return to haunt us. Opening in April 1996 with a religious ceremony led by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would hear thousands of hours of testimony over the next two years, from victims and perpetrators of human rights violations. I did terrible things to members of the ANC. You remember saying to me that you are able to treat me like an animal? 
they put a stick behind your knees and you were hung upside down. Whilst this was happening, you were suffocated. Open to the public, hundreds of hearings were conducted in town halls, churches and schools across South Africa. It was a most ambitious undertaking and a personal challenge for many involved. As commissioners, we understood that our function was to try and bring people together. But it was a very difficult thing to do as a lawyer because I am black and had myself been a victim of the apartheid regime. Justice C.C. Campepe now sits as a judge at the Constitutional Court of South Africa. In 1996, she served on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was divided into three categories. One dealt with the recording of abuse, one with the issue of reparations and rehabilitation, and the third was the most controversial of all, the Amnesty Committee, which pardoned perpetrators of human rights violations committed under the apartheid years if they confessed in full detail to the crime. Sisi Campepe sat on the Amnesty Committee. Sitting in that committee was the most difficult because... I think victims did not relate to the functions of the committee because people could not understand how perpetrators could be forgiven merely by disclosing the truth. The hearings were broadcast on radio and television in all of South Africa's national languages, but as graphic and distressing details of the truth about apartheid were exposed, the far harder challenge of reconciliation remained. Amnesty did not require anyone to apologise for the acts which they had committed, though there were occasions when people who applied for amnesty did say sorry. Those were few and far in between. It was extraordinarily difficult for me when people did not apologize. You see, I grew up in Soweto. I had also observed close relatives being shot by the security police. The same security police who were appearing before us to be granted amnesty. So I personally knew the harshness of the system. Yet as a member of the amnesty committee, I had to decide that these people had to be granted amnesty. Not because they were apologetic, but merely because they disclosed the truth. There was no other way other than to eliminate these people. When you're talking about elimination, you mean to kill them. That is correct. That one human being could treat another in such an inhumane was unthinkable to me. I mean, it was an incredibly ambitious project, wasn't it, to even attempt to reunite such a divided nation after such a brutal past. How crucial was the leadership of people like Desmond Tutu in all of this? Archbishop Desmond Tutu was the star of the Truth Commission. And as a man of God, was able to even speak to us as commissioners words of encouragement. Many criticised the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, claiming that it failed to administer real justice for the victims and allowed perpetrators to literally get away with murder. 
Whilst Cici Campepe admits it was an imperfect mechanism, she believes it did help to build a new South Africa. I think that the TRC played a significant role in bringing the country as peacefully as possible to where we are today. It was the Amnesty Committee that enabled a lot of atrocities to be uncovered. Without the provision of amnesty, there would have been a shroud of secrecy as to what really happened to people who disappeared and people who were brutally killed. It's extraordinarily difficult, isn't it, for a society to strike that balance between finding out the truth about what had happened and getting any sort of restitution for those crimes. Yes, indeed, particularly when you see the perpetrators in front of you who are living a far better lifestyle than yours. In largely beautiful suburbs and communities, they had access to public amenities like hospitals, clinics, schools that were in a much better condition than those in the black townships. That brought a lot of bitterness. But this is where the magic of Nelson Mandela comes alive because he can see that there are people who who were not happy. So he then brought his leadership skill and convinced everybody that this is not just the right route to take, but the only one. And those who were resisting wanted their apartheid perpetrators to be lynched in public. But they were, in fairness to the South African masses, there were very few of those. People followed Nelson Mandela's truth and reconciliation concept because they were willing to be led. They wanted it. So he was leading a willing people. How successful, though, has it been? I mean, does South Africa today feel like a country which has both found the truth and achieved reconciliation? It's an ongoing project. And there you have it. Amnesty, forgiveness, contrition. All of these are different things that we can fight for. And they may seem like justice, but there is a difference. As you can see from these stories, there are people who are unready to act contrite for the crimes that they committed. And there are people who are unwilling to forgive them. And in between those unwilling to confess and those unwilling to forgive lies the process of truth and reconciliation. There's no promise of justice, but there is a promise of understanding what happened. This didn't happen in places like Serbia and Croatia, where the people were still unready to come to the table and discuss the matters. And it doesn't happen in empires like the U.S. with Native Americans because empires don't ever admit they're wrong. But Canada has done this. Australia has done this. Rwanda has done this. Many places have done this. And it is our duty as people, as citizens, to raise awareness that this truth and reconciliation is the only way. That's what makes the truth revolutionary. 
This has been the Living Prophets Podcast. I thank you for your time, and I hope you'll click to the next episode.